Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late El Emanuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Having found the perfect spot in Woody Point, Ella Manuel realizes the dream of a house of her own, but not without befuddling local builders. In this story, she tells of building my house on the hill. I hadn't been back but three days before somebody asked, what are you going to do this summer? And to my utter horror, I heard myself saying, I'm going to build a house. I turned to my friend Emma. Did you hear what I just said? My God, what came over me? I had lived during one summer in a cottage on the point behind the public wharf, with the smell of seaweed and the coastal steamers bearing down as if they were coming clear into my garden. That house had been sold, and then I'd lived in a tiny cottage at the end of the bay, with only a stove, a chair, a table, and a bed, but with a wonderful bridge, as we call verandas, overlooking Gross Morn and the purple cliffs across two miles of the deepest blue water. Now that one was taken too, and in the intervening three years I had arranged my life so that I no longer had to live in town, but could spend as much time as I wished in the only place where I could really be contented. But build a house? Of course I wanted one. I'd wanted one for years. But I always had good reason for not getting one. First it was money. Then it was my inability to decide what sort of house I wanted. Now here I was, hoist on my own petard. I knew that news would get round so fast I'd have no way out. So I began looking for a place to build. It must have a view, I told myself, because that's why I wanted to live there to be able to see out and over. But surely there were lots of good views. There were indeed, but nobody wanted to sell me an inch of land, much less a building lot. Me father left it to me, and me sons might want to have some back when they finished working in the mill. The land's not really mine. Me brother owns half, and he's in Toronto. And so it went. Villagers would stop me on the road. Ah, here are you going to stay. Now where are you going to build, Ella? I couldn't sleep nights. I went round in circles and finally came back to the basic fact that building a house was altogether too much for me. After a week or more of this, I asked Emma, I know you wouldn't sell me a piece of your meadow, would you? Oh, yes, I would, she replied heartily. Just go up and stake out what you want. So that afternoon found me on the hillside, armed with four kindling splits that I'd sharpened with an axe. I walked round what I thought should be enough land for a small house and a garden, drove in the stakes, and sat on a huge boulder to have a look. The view was nothing less than stupendous. In front of me was the sea, to my right the long, smooth top of the tableland, all brow and bare before which was the round green of Birchy Head, and to one side the sharp edge of the Picatinny Reef. Behind me more hills covered with spruce and fir and birch, and to my left lay the long sweep of the western arm of Bombay, with gross morn, round, grey, and full of shadow, and the green mountains of the long range fading into the distance. I asked Emma how much she wanted for the land, but all she said was, I don't want you to move that rock, as if I could. It was as big as a young mountain, and anyhow I decided that I wanted it just at the corner of the house. 
That was how I chose the exact spot. Four more splits to mark it, 20 by 30 feet. I measured with a tape what I considered a good round figure, though I couldn't picture how much space that would give me inside. Emma said to me, Get Taylor to build your house. You'll have something wonderfully solid then. Taylor was our dear friend, a First World War vet, a wonderful woodsman and raconteur. I never thought of him doing anything as ordinary as building a house, but apparently he'd said to Em that he was sorry for me, a lone woman whose sons had abandoned her, and she without shelter. To me, he said, I guess I can manage to put down the foundation, frame it up and put on the roof before mowing time, but mind you, I wouldn't do it for anyone else but you and Emma, which made the house a special thing even before it started. Now, said Taylor, you draw up a plan for me. I thought for one moment of the bulging file I had somewhere, collected over many years with all sorts of wonderful ideas, for a home inside and out, but all I could say was, I want it twenty by thirty, one story, and not too steep a roof. Taylor was all for saving money, so when we got to the question of a foundation, he said, Now, if you want to get some water-soaked sticks, they'd do as pilings for twenty, thirty years before them longers rotted. You go down and see if you can get a few off of Jabez. Yes, my maid, said Jabe. You can have any gods amount of them sticks. I'm going to tear off that cribbing on me wharf anyhow when the government gets around to building a new ramp. Let me see now. Moon's full on Tuesday. Should be good low tide on Monday evening. I'll get the sticks off then with me boat. By the following Saturday, Jabez must have been sick of the sight of me hanging about his wharf, so he called for his son to lend a hand. He managed to lasso the end of the piling, tied the end to the big boat, put the engine full speed, and ripped the thirty-foot log off its base, easy as wink. Jabe triumphantly towed it to shore, moored it to the bank, and surveyed its worm-eaten length. There you is. It'll make twelve good longers when to sod up. I was delighted. My little house anchored to the earth with logs that had lain in the sea, festooned with seaweed and caressed by Connors, Sculpins, and Tomcod, and it cost me nothing so far. Getting the log cut and hauled to the site was my next job. Jabez said Bill had a buck saw, and Bill said I could have the loan of it if I could find it. I questioned five of Bill's seven youngsters one by one before I found the saw behind the remains of the old marine engine, which was itself behind a stack of lobster pots. I dragged it out, paid Bill's oldest boy to sharpen it, and then I went round the village trying to find Austin, who had an old truck and did odd jobs. After I'd run him to earth, having a mug up in the gallery of a long liner, he said he'd do the job seven o'clock Monday morning but he'd need someone to help him because, whether I knew it or not, water-soaked logs were very heavy. And then he added, "'Tisn't everyone would drive the truck up your road." "'Well, I know it's bad,' I agreed, "'and I can't take my car up it either, "'but come fall we'll get it fixed.' "'Come somebody dies,' reported Austin, "'for my road led only to the cemetery on the hill behind me. "'And lying almost in the middle of the road "'was a pile of logs someone had hauled out "'the winter before and dumped there,' as far as a horse and sled could then get. That someone was Richard, I soon discovered. I found him down in the bait depot and threatened him with court works if he didn't move the wood. I told him that Austin would bring it down if he would get up early Monday morning and help in getting my stick up to the house. Austin would help him move his wood 
It all fell together like a jigsaw puzzle. That evening, Taylor came off the hill for a beer. I could see something was disturbing him. My maid, he said, I've been all over your land with a crowbar and I can't get it down more than a foot. We won't be able to use them sticks for longers. We'll have to make them of concrete. And that, he added, is going to cut into your fishing time because there's no cement within 40 miles of On Bay. Now mind what you said, you wouldn't hold us up five minutes for want of material for the house. Jabez arrived at this moment, got his bottle of beer and joined us. Just as well, he said judiciously. Jabe had judicious opinions about everything under the sun and made quite certain that you heard his ideas from A to Z, whether you wanted to or not. Way I sees it, he said. First big blow and you'll come right off that hill unless you're hankered fore and aft, and sticks won't do it. Now Jabez has a high, penetrating voice, so everyone around heard him. Those in favor of my blowing away cited instances of trees uprooted, roofs sailing through the air, poles going down like nine pins after a sou'wester roared through the funnel of the gulch behind my land. Ah, go on, for glory's sake, said Em. Don't be so foolish, Jabe. That barn up on my meadow, two stories high with a list on her like this, she put her hands together at a fifty-degree angle, and it's been that way since I can remember. Why didn't that blow down? She was disgusted and flounced out. But Taylor was taking no chances. When he came to pour concrete for the posts, he added to the mixture a hundred pounds of old iron chain to anchor down my house. But before that happened, there were several things I had dimly foreseen, ones that made me shy off building a house in the first place. I didn't want to spend the summer driving over the winding, dusty, hilly, rocky road to Cornerbrook for supplies. I wanted to fish and lie in the sun. But this was not to be. Taylor said, We want six bags of cement day after tomorrow. Fair enough. Albert could bring it down by truck. But no, Albert wasn't going to Cornerbrook next day. Not enough orders to make it worthwhile. And the following day was a holiday in the shops. Well, you'll have to go to Deer Lake yourself, said Taylor. Can't hold us up. Weather might break any moment now. And while you're at it, see if you can find a forge and get 16 bolts, 15 inches long, turned up at the ends. Gonna bolt you down good, my dear. So I drove to Deer Lake. It took me an hour and a half each way. I got home tired, dusty, and bad-tempered, lugged the bolts up the hill to the house, and told the boys to come fetch the cement. By this time, Taylor, who had his buddy George working with him, said he'd made a mistake. He needed eight bags of cement, because he forgot the house was higher off the sloping ground in front and hadn't calculated on that. Well, I won't go back, I said. It's going to take me four days to get over this trip. George was soothing. He had a wonderful soothing influence all through this operation, and I never did figure out whether he was a bit afraid of me or was just naturally gallant. Anyhow, he said, get a loan of a few bags from Fred. He's got plenty. Fred was building a concrete block storehouse. Down I went, hung about a bit, sort of casing the joint, but I couldn't see an ounce of cement. Finally, I shamefacedly admitted the purpose of my visit. Never does to order just enough, said Fred. Oh, I just loaned me last bag to the fellers in the school. They ran out sudden, too. Well, damn it, I said, and took refuge with Emmy and a cup of coffee. She said I was some stunned to go to Deer Lake in the first place, when Norm over in Norris Point had barrels of cement. 
and being of a practical turn of mind, she suggested that I make one journey and get my lumber ordered the same time. I asked Taylor what we needed, and he spouted a list as long as your arm. Seeing my dismay, George suggested, uh, You just go down to Shears and tell him what we're doing of, and he'll send you whatever we want. So I put my car on the ferry, chugged across the bay, the only way then to get to Norris Point, and ordered my cement. This time I wasn't to be had. I ordered four bags, not two. And then I drove on to Rocky Harbor and found Mr. Shears. He got pencil and paper and worked out. Two by twelves, three by eights, and six by tens. The bill came to $480, and then I knew I was building a house. The cement came. Taylor discovered he only needed six bags after all, and I'd better do something with the other four because we couldn't leave them out in the weather. After much arm-twisting, Ed said he'd take them off me for friendship's sake. But when we get, went to fetch them, there they were gone. Fred had run out, heard there was some to be had on my land, and just helped himself. Well, we had a spell then, and I caught up with my fishing. The sills went down, the beams and uprights appeared, and the rafters and roof went on. Shingles, said George. Now, if I was you, I'd get those nice blue shiny ones like Taylor got. They'd show up right nice on the hill. Indeed, they would show up, but how nicely was another matter. You see, Taylor's house stood on the beach, with the sea for a foil to his blue roof. I wanted the most unobtrusive color you could find, so as to blend with the hillside and not be an exclamation point in the middle of the most lovely landscape on earth. Not only did I buy a color of shingle called autumn brown, but I also made the boys paint the eaves brown, and I broke the news that I was going to use cedar clapboard in its natural state. Oh my, said Taylor, you won't be able to see the house from nowhere. By this time I was wondering how much more I could get away with. I knew the real battle was to come. But before that, George said, I love's first thing knows, everyone will want to be up here. I'm going to get a bit of land myself. There's a jib sticking out to westward that nobody owns. Aha, I said, that's what you think. Em's got it all tied up, and we've agreed only four houses in the field, stacked so's nobody will spoil anybody else's view, and Em's fussy who she sells to. Four houses, then? Taylor joined the discussion. Well, now, that makes the septic tank business easier. See, that tank's going to cost you a bit. Jim's been digging all week to the rock, and I figure you're going to need nigh on a hundred feet of pipe. That'll cost you some. And then he brightened. Never mind, though. First bang of the pick, and we found water. I reckon your will won't cost you more than ten dollars, and I got a cutoff valve I'll give you. Whatever a cutoff valve was, I was duly grateful, for I was running out of money, and the wallboard for the outside not yet paid for. It was getting toward mowing time. Taylor was restive. George didn't mind. He had no cows. So Taylor said they would work overtime and cover the house in good enough for winter, and then come spring they'd finish it. All you have to do, he said, is mark out where the windows are going. Get them ordered, and time you get back, we'll have men and the clapboard on. My sister wired me from Cornerbrook to come to a sale of windows at a shop which had just been remodeled. I endured the drive up and got two plate glass mirrors, three small windows, and one huge one for ten dollars, counted my change and ordered a double glass window, six foot high and five feet wide, for my view over the bay. 
What are you going to do with the two looking glasses? George asked. Taylor told him to so I could see myself fore and aft, same time. And I said, I'm ready to mark on the uprights where I want the windows. Well, I suppose you're going to put them in the middle of the wall, said Taylor. Where else would you put them? Whenever I think of the argument ensuing, I go cold all over. Several times I thought all was lost. I couldn't make them understand that having gone to all the trouble of building my house way up on the hill, I wanted to have a free run of the view. And I couldn't do that with the windows in the middle of the walls, no matter how queer they'd look from the outside. So I put heavy black marks on the uprights, and I swear the boys moved them a few inches every night. Many a time I waited all day for the workmen, only for them to appear the next day. After one such delay, I asked, "'What kept you, George?' "'Well,' he said, "'I had to put a yarn in the church basement.' Never having run across such a thing before, and suspecting that he was trying to pull the wool over my eyes, I asked, "'Now, George, what do you do with the yarnel?' "'My dear, I don't know what you do, but I pisses in it.' Little untoward happened." as they wrapped the house in insulation and put on tent-test as the wallboards. I had, during the previous winter on the mainland, found a lovely insulation called sea felt, and it appealed to me having my house wrapped in the eelgrass that fish had nosed in and limpets attached themselves to. When I bought the windows, I also bought a front door. Taylor made the box, hung it, and then came down for a beer and to say, my mate, that's a very timid door you got. I hung it, but I'll have to make a storm door. That one's not strong enough to stand the winter. And another thing, we'll have to put up partitions. I'm not having any partitions, I told him. Blessed lard, Ella, you've got to have partitions. If you leave them off for the winter, any amount of snow on the roof and the rifters won't stand it. Well, I must say... I admired the aplomb with which he received the news that partitions were impossible. You see, I hadn't decided what I was going to do with the space. The last thing Taylor and George did was put the bathtub, which I'd bought so cheaply I still can't believe it, on the floor against the outside wall and built partitions at each end of the tub to hold up the rifters. Meanwhile, the matter of paying for the land on which my house rested weighed heavily on my mind. Every time I broached the subject to M, she'd say, Now, we're not going to row about that. We'll see about it sometime. I want to get it properly surveyed come fall. Well, I suggested something might happen to one of us, and then what a mess our heirs and assigns would be in. So we rather sheepishly went to the magistrate. I, I am sure he thought we were absolutely off our heads, me at least, after building a house without title to the land. So he solemnly called someone from the wharf to solemnly swear I was me and M was she, these were our signatures, and that he'd seen a check pass from me to M. And then a little bit of paper passing hands made me owner of what I'd been thinking of as my piece of land for the past three months. Come spring me maid, said Taylor, we'll get you to rights. Just take your time deciding what you want inside. I was now open to suggestion from all. What should I do with twenty by thirty feet, mostly window? Well, the first thing was to take the timid door from off the outside and hang it in front of the bathtub. Finally, the day came when I took possession. I could now stand in the middle of the room and look north, south, and east. 
and I did that for an entire month until I recovered from my astonishment at having succeeded in getting precisely what I wanted. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.